Over the past few years, I have asked you guys to give me a rating and review. And if you've done that, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. It's so helpful. But if you haven't, I get it. I kind of get it. Like, I'm asking you to go and click on this thing and then like, how do I do it? And then I have to come up with some kind of a review and I don't know what to say and I'll do it later, right? I, I get it. I've, I've kind of been there before. I, I know exactly how you feel. And so I'm not asking you to do that now, okay? What I'm asking you to do now is so easy. Anybody can do it and it literally takes like one second. Go into whatever you're listening to, whether it's Apple Podcast or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on, they all have it, and just click on the subscribe button. Just subscribe. It takes one second. You don't have to be creative. You don't have to come up with a review and write it all out and you know be self-conscious about it. Just hit that subscribe button. That would be so, so, so impactful for me. And if you're enjoying this and getting a lot out of it, that would mean the world to me. It really would. And it's so easy. Anyone can do it. Like, let's literally stop listening right now. Stop listening. Go and do it. That's how much it means to me. Nobody ever asks you to leave their show and stop listening for anything. But I'm asking you to stop listening right now. Go and just quickly subscribe. Come right back and take a listen. That would mean the world to me. I would really appreciate it. You guys are awesome. And I really appreciate it. Thanks. The best way to make sure that your team always has questions and they never stop asking them is when you answer them every time. In other words, if somebody in my team comes to me with a question, I try to get them to come up with an answer themselves. Like, what would you do if I wasn't available? What would what is your idea how to solve this? And then you you, you use that as a teaching moment, right? You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, thank you for joining me on Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate you being here. I'm excited to be here with you and bring you another live Q&A replay. You know, we do these on Wednesdays live on Facebook, uh, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, wherever you want to tune in, you can tune in and ask questions live. I, I get great questions and it's a huge value to bring them here to you. And I know that you guys are enjoying it because the downloads tell the story. You guys are gobbling up these replays and I'm glad because I think there's a lot of value in them. So I'm uh, bringing another great one to you today. We talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about who, plays, who pays the closing fees in a wholesale deal. Question that came, right? Who pays those fees? Uh, different ways you can build your buyers list. We talked about working remotely and how do you manage a team, keep them motivated, answer questions, like how do you structure that work environment when it's remotely. Uh, we talked about um, uh, a bunch of other stuff, people, just all kinds of great questions. Like I said, um, some working remote stuff, some big ticket renovations, like how do you uh, deal and in, in are the big ticket renovations a product of, of the market that we're in and how do we navigate those waters? So really good questions and uh, some great conversations. So uh, without any further delay, I give you my latest Q and A. Okay, everybody, we are live. We're live on Instagram. We're live on Facebook, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, you name it, we're there. Uh, and so wherever you're watching, thank you and welcome for uh, welcome to the show. And uh, thank you for being here. Uh, we're here every single week at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific. And I'm here to answer your questions about real estate. I say it all the time, kind of jokingly, if you ask me questions that are not real estate related. 
I will answer them because I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. I like to give my opinion. So if you ask me non-real estate questions, I will answer them, but that's, we're here for real estate, okay? I can answer you as an expert in real estate. Everything else, I'm winging it. So you decide what you ask me, but I'm, I'm here for it. Uh, all kidding aside, I, there's a lot going on right now in the real estate market. Uh, we're in a changing environment, right? We have a recession that's happening. And it's happening to different extents, maybe to different people in different places. And the real estate market's for sure changing. And that is definitely more of a local, regional kind of a shift. Here in Michigan, where I am, it's not dramatic, but I know in other places, it's quite, it's already quite dramatic. And so that means there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of people not sure if they should get into real estate. They're not sure if they should you know, take certain actions because they just don't know what to expect. And the fact of the matter is change makes people nervous. It doesn't even really matter what the change is. We're creatures of habit and we're used to a certain thing. And when that thing changes, it makes people nervous and unsure. And I get that, but here's my take on it, my two second take. And I, I may get deeper into this if there's questions related to it. And I've given this opinion more than once on the show, but uh, the real estate market is changing. And sometimes the market changes and it makes certain things harder and certain things easier. And that's exactly what's happening. We're going from a, a market where it was really hard to buy real estate as an investor, just really, really hard to buy real estate at a discount that made sense for us as investors. And But it was easy to sell, right? So if you're like a house flipper, for example, you, were, you probably struggled a little bit or it was a bit of a challenge to get great deals but when you renovated them and put them on the market, a lot of times they were selling for even more than you thought they would. And there's this bidding war and all these you know crazy things that people are doing to try to find properties to buy. And so that worked out well on the end of the transaction where we were trying to sell the finished product. We're moving into a market now where it's the opposite. It's going to become much, much easier to buy properties at a discount and selling them is... I'm not going to say it's going to be hard, but it's going to have a different challenge to it. So instead of being in a market where, you know, let's just say you buy a house for 100000 it needs work, you put $25,000 into it, and then you expect to sell it for, let's just say, two seventy-five, dollars okay, or $300,000. we are going to a market now where if you, if you think it'll be worth two seventy-five dollars in four or five months when you're done renovating, it may be worth two sixty-five. dollars because the market's going the other way. And so you have to anticipate that market shift a little bit and start making offers that will allow you to look at the ARV today and then adjust by five or 10% in four or five or six months when it's ready to sell, right? That's the difference. It's, it's not worse, it's just different. It's gonna be easier to buy, harder to sell. Whereas you know a year ago, uh, harder to buy, easier to sell. So it's just a change. It's, it's not bad. I mean, I've said this before. I said it on a podcast last week. The market is not out to get you. It's really not. The market is not the problem. It's sometimes our mindset and the way that we kind of approach the market and how we approach our business. If you try to conduct your business exactly like you did a year ago, yeah, you're probably going to struggle a little bit because you're not paying attention to the to the tea leaves, right? You're not reading the tea leaves. And so that's what I'm here for is to help you navigate some of those questions for sure, but even non-market related questions about flipping, wholesaling, buying rentals, buying short-term rentals, long-term rentals, medium-term rentals, uh, raising money, all those things. I'm here for you to answer the questions. I am part of a mastermind called the Seven Figure Flipping Group. 
And the seven figure flipping mastermind is a high level, high ticket mastermind. It costs between $15,000 and $25,000 a year to be in it, right? It's well worth it, but it's a big ticket item. Not everyone can afford that. Not everyone can do that. So I take the information that we share in that in that mastermind and I, I bring that knowledge and experience to this, this show, this time of night on Wednesdays where you can come and ask me questions for free. I charge people to do one-on-one coaching and it's not cheap. And to be in that mastermind, it costs money. It's not cheap, right? So how do you get the benefits of a high level, high ticket mastermind for free? How do you, how do you sort of, you know, game that system a little bit? I need the information inside the mastermind, but I don't want to pay. How do you do that? You come here on Wednesdays and you ask me any questions you want. And I'm giving, I'm going to give you the same answers that I give high level, you know, high ticket mastermind members. I'm, I'm doing the same thing right here for you. So to not take advantage of it is, is odd, especially if you're trying to grow or start your business. Um, and so I want to help you with those things, but you have to show up, you have to ask questions or send me the questions ahead of time. So that's what we do. We answer questions that are sent to us ahead of time and we answer live questions. One of the things that I have done specifically to try to help all of you with your business in this economy and in the next economy and the next one after that is I'm trying to help you find leads. And to do that, I've developed a course called Winning Direct Mail. Now, why is it called Winning Direct Mail? Because I have figured out how to win with direct mail. I figured out how to drive maximum leads into my business using direct mail. And over the last seven years, I've spent over a million dollars in marketing, in direct mail, specifically over a million dollars, trying to learn and figure out and crack the code. And I, I've done that and I'm sharing that with you. And the best part is like this show, like this time of night on Wednesdays, it's totally free. All you have to do is go and claim it, go and get it, go get this course. It's a five video course. There's a bonus video at the end. I cover everything about direct mail that I've ever learned from start to finish. So you can launch your own direct mail campaign and start driving leads into your business. Okay. Now is the time to do that. We have a very unique opportunity in our, in our time, right? In, in the time that we're in to really maximize what's about to happen. It, you know, we're not going to go through a, a recession like we did 12 years ago, I don't think, or 14 years ago now almost. But we are going to enter a time where the opportunity for real estate investors is tremendous. There's no doubt about it. I am 100% convinced that if you really take advantage of the moment that we're in right now and over the next you know, 18 to 24 months, then there's a tremendous amount of money to be made and there's a lot of success to be had, but you have to act now. And the first thing you need to do as a real estate investor is drive leads into your business. Leads is, are like oxygen in our business. They literally keep our business alive. Your body can't survive without oxygen very long, depending on you know, how long you can hold your breath. And if you're like a deep sea diver or whatever, and you can hold it for five minutes or whatever, that's fine. But an hour later, you're dead. I don't care who you are, right? Greg Luganis is not holding his breath for an hour. So your business is the same way. The more days that go by without leads coming into your business, your, your business is dying. And the one thing I would suggest to you, if you haven't tried direct mail, is to try it. If you're doing direct mail and you're like, this guy's crazy, direct mail doesn't work, you're doing it wrong. Trust me. Get the Just get, get my course. It's free. Okay. If you watch the whole thing and you still think direct mail isn't for you, then write me inside the course. There's a way you can comment. We can communicate, right? That's another way to kind of game the system. You want access to me for free? 
go and get the course. If you ask questions inside the course, I will answer them. So that's just another way to get me for free. But you have to go get the course. If you don't use it, if you don't like it, if you think it's not, not helpful for you, what did you lose? Nothing. Just a little bit of time watching it. But I promise you, it's well worth the time to watch it, especially if you need more leads in your business. And I'll be honest with you, we all need leads. All of us. I do. You do. Even if you have enough leads, I would challenge that you need better leads. You need cheaper leads. You need more motivated leads. Okay. So go, go grab that. Do yourself a favor. Drive more leads. Let's build that business right now in the time that we're in. No better time. Okay. Let's get into the first question. If you have questions on Instagram, please ask them. If you have questions, you're on Facebook or YouTube, ask away. I'm, I'm here for you. So just uh, ask the questions and we'll answer those live for you. Okay. Uh, can you talk about the various ways I can build my buyers list? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways you can do it. There's three ways that I think are probably the best, the highest quality ways to do it. Um, probably the highest quality way or one of the most quality ways to do it is to literally show up at your local RIAs and real estate meetups and wherever real estate investors congregate, you need to be there at those events, shaking hands, introducing yourself, getting to know who the players on your market are and getting them on your buyers list. Okay. That's how I started to build my buyers list in the beginning. And those were the best buyers that I had at the time. They were the people who were just local. They're going to the meetups and the RIAs. Those are the folks that are actively, they're spending a Thursday night or a Tuesday night or whatever time your RIA is. They're spending time out there uh, trying to build their business and network and learn. So get those people on your buyers list. That's number one. Number two is you can use a service like List Source. And you can do a search. Most people use list source to find motivated sellers. And I do too. That's a great place to go for motivated sellers. But if you can go there to find buyers, motivated buyers, and the way you do it is you pull a list and the criteria is bought it for cash. So there's no, no mortgage recorded. It's non-owner occupied, meaning it's, it's not being lived in by the owner. And it was purchased inside of an LLC. Those are the three things you want to look for. Purchased in an LLC, non-owner occupied, no mortgage. That's an investment property. That's an investor. You get that, that property. You get those properties. You, get the, you download the list. Uh, it's an Excel file. You download that. You send it out to be skip traced, right? Because we want to get their phone number too. And then what I do is send them a letter that says, hey, uh, my name is Mike and I have this company. We get off. I'm just kind of paraphrasing. It's not how I phrase it, but we find off market deals and I can see that you buy properties and it looks like they're investment properties. If you'd ever want to see more off market deals at tremendous discounts, then go to this website. You should have a website created for your buyers. Go to this website, put in your name and you'll be on my buyers list and you'll get to see everything that I find. That's I send that to them. I also, uh, depending on how big of a buyer they are, if I can tell they bought a lot of properties, I may just call them, just pick up the phone and call them because a lot of people still want to talk on the phone, guys. Believe it or not, they want to talk on the phone. So that's the second way, list source. The third way is a little bit more ninja, a little bit more like ingenious, right? Like evil genius is I get on all of my competitors lists, all the wholesalers in my market. I want to be on their list. So when they send properties out, I make a note of them. I put them in an Excel sheet or I, I just make a record of them somewhere. And then three or four months later, I go back and I skip trace who the owners are. And the owners of those properties that my competitors are sending out, 
the owners are their buyers and it's not just random buyers these are active buyers they purchased properties in the last three or four months and so i'm getting those names and and, and uh, contact information putting them on my buyers list and moving forward so you can sort of get all of the best buyers from your competitors by just skip tracing all their deals and you're going to find out who's buying their properties right ninja that's those are the three best ways in my opinion to build a buyer's list. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Okay, uh, let's see. Next question. Who pays the closing fees in a wholesale deal? Okay, so in a wholesale deal, just a two-second overview. If you don't know what wholesaling is, I'm a wholesaler. I, I market to sellers who have some distress or they're motivated in some way to sell their house. I market to them. I go, I sit with them. I, uh, we come to terms on a price to buy their house and I signed a purchase agreement with them, right? So now I have a purchase agreement to buy a house. I take that purchase agreement and I market it out to a private buyer's list, right? Just we were talking about just now, buyer's list. I market out this property marked up with my fee to my private list of buyers who are interested and have identified themselves and told me they want to buy properties, investment properties. I market it out to them. When I find someone who's willing to pay what I want, so let's just say, for example, I have it under contract for 100,000. I market it out to my buyers for 125,000. Somebody says, yes, the 125,000 works for me. Those are good numbers. It makes sense. I like that. I want to buy it. We go to closing. The buyer brings the money, all the 125. The seller gets their 100, and I get $25,000 at closing. That's what that's the, the process of a wholesale deal, like super, super high level, right? So the question is, who pays the closing fees? And the answer is it depends. Typically, the seller pays their seller closing fees and the buyer that you find pays the buyer's closing fees, right? And everyone pays their own. And as a wholesaler, I don't pay either one. That's that's normally how it works. Now, you can, as a negotiation tool, when you're talking to the seller, you can offer to pay their closing costs, right? Maybe sometimes you're real close to getting a deal and there's just they're not quite there and they don't want to pull the trigger to do it. And you say, listen... How about if I pay your closing costs? And they say, "Wow, that's great. Uh, I would, I would, I would sign the contract if you agree to pay my closing costs." And so, we put in the purchase agreement, buyer. Okay, think about this now. Am I the buyer? No, I found a buyer who wants to buy the house. We put in the purchase agreement, buyer to pay closing costs for seller, or buyer to pay seller's closing costs. Then that's the that's the contract I'm marketing out. So when the buyer comes along and says, "Yes, I'll pay," you know, in my in my scenario, 125,000 for that house, I say, "Okay, just so you know, you can see here in the purchase agreement, you are going to pay the seller's closing costs. That's the agreement we have with the seller that you will pay their closing costs." And the buyer will either say, "Okay, I got it, understood," or they'll say, "No, I'm not going to pay it." And then you have one of two things you can do. You can say, okay, Mr. Buyer, then I'm not going to sell you this property. I'm going to go to a different buyer who agrees to, to pay those closing costs. Or if that buyer is just, you just want to stick with them for whatever reason, maybe they're paying a lot more than the other buyers, then you can choose as the wholesaler, you can pay those closing costs out of your assignment fee or out of your fee that that $25,000 spread, you can pay the closing costs. What I don't suggest you do is go back to the seller and try to get them to pay it after you already agreed to pay it. So either you're going to pay it as the wholesaler out of your fee, or you're going to you're going to pass that on to the buyer per the purchase agreement and the buyer is going to pay it. But normally, sellers and buyers pay their own closing costs typically. That's you know the normal way to do it. Okay. Let's move on to the next question. I'm flying through these things. All right. Next question. Let's see. 
We are struggling to make our remote workplace function effectively. How do you minimize the constant questions from staff? Keep everyone engaged, but not interrupt during Zoom meetings. Um, I don't really have this problem. My problem was when I started working remotely with my company was I was more worried about people working and I had to get over that. Um, but your question is, how do you minimize constant questions? I, I mean, constant questions would happen, I would imagine, whether you were remote or in person, right? If your staff has questions all the time, I doubt that their questions are purely a result of being remote. Maybe, maybe some of them, but I don't think most of them. They're probably more questions about, you know, deals and things like that. So it sounds like they need more instruction. They need more structure and maybe a little bit more training so they don't have so many questions. But the reality is if they're new employees, they're going to have questions and they're going to have a ton of them. And, you know, the, the better job you do as a manager, the fewer the questions and the sooner the questions go away and they're able to manage themselves. One thing I will say, whether you're remote or in person, the best way to make sure that your team always has questions and they never stop asking them is when you answer them every time. In other words, if somebody in my team comes to me with a question, I try to get them to come up with an answer themselves. Like, what would you do if I wasn't available? What would What is your idea how to solve this? And then you, you, you use that as a teaching moment, right? Nine times out of 10, their solution is going to be acceptable. It may not be exactly what you would do, but nine times out of 10, if you hired well, right, and you have good, competent people, their solution is going to work just fine. And you have to try as the owner or, you know, the, the, the leader to not micromanage or become this perfectionist that thinks everything has to be done exactly their way. Because when a, when a team member comes to you with a question and you just give them the answer and then send them on their way, they're going to come back and you're going to answer it. You're training them to just ask you every time. That's Of course, they're going to do that, right? They're just going to come to you. The minute they have anything to decide, they're just going to come to you because you just give them answers. But if you push back and make them come up with answers and make them handle it and you don't answer their questions every single time they ask, they're going to learn to think for themselves. And so that's, it. I just, you know, you're asking me about remote and the questions. I don't see remote as as causing more questions. I see management styles causing more questions. So I would say adjust your management style a little bit. Even if you know they don't know the answer or even if you're really like convinced that you need to give them direction because they just don't know and it's super important and you know exactly what has to happen and you're trying to avoid a catastrophe. I get that, right? They may not always know the answer, but start developing that muscle. I will tell you what I think, but first I want to hear your solution. The best you can do to like, tell me the best solution to this problem in your opinion. Like how would you handle it? And then you could say, Hey, that's, that's a, that's, that's a good solution, but here's what I would do. And here's why, right? Always tell them what you, if you're going to tell them what, what the answer is, always give them the reasoning behind it. So they can use that reasoning in the future to solve that problem or a similar problem. But I, I'm bad for this. I know I'm bad about this. And it's something that I always constantly have to work on. When, when I see a nail, I become a hammer. So when someone asks me a question, I, my, in, my instincts are to just answer it. I, I don't always think to like, make them think for themselves, I want to answer it. Sometimes it's because I want to just move on. And sometimes it's because 
it's a reflex, right? It's just a reflex. Somebody throws something, like tosses something to you underhand. What's your reflex to, to catch it, right? No matter what it is, they throw it, you're going to catch it. And that's how I feel when people ask me questions. I want to answer it. I'm just wired that way. And I have to, I have to learn not to do that. So I would say don't always answer their questions. Make them think for themselves. And then the second part is uh, keep, you want to keep everyone engaged but not interrupt during Zoom meetings. If you're not in the Zoom meeting, certainly don't interrupt. We use, just so you know, we, to, for us to stay connected in our company, and it's worked really, really well for us, is A, we have a CRM that we use inside of our company. We use RE Simply, but you could use Podio, Infusionsoft. Like there's a lot of things that, that you can use that isn't, you know, RE Simply. It doesn't really matter, but we have a CRM that we communicate, we communicate in. But also on our phones, we have an app called WhatsApp. Right? It's very popular. It's super popular uh, app that people use all over the world. But we use WhatsApp as the immediate feedback um, tool, communication tool. So we can text, we can leave a voicemail, we can send video, whatever we need to do. But we use WhatsApp to constantly stay in contact when we need to and to celebrate wins and to talk about challenges and to get group consensus. Like we do all of that through WhatsApp. And so I would suggest using something like that on your phone that's mobile that people have access to all the time where you can celebrate wins and stay connected and ask questions and see if everyone's feeling, you know, feeling good that day or whatever. Like you can use that tool for that reason. And that's really how we always stay connected is through WhatsApp. So that would be my suggestion there. <clears throat> okay, Angela, I don't know if we have any more. We probably do. Do we have more? Yes, we do. All right. And by the way, guys, if you are watching this live, feel free to put your questions in the comments and I will get them answered. Okay. Next question, the several, pro okay, the last several properties I have evaluated have had big ticket items that need repair or replacement. During this recession, do you think that is mostly what is going to be available and I just need to bite the bullet? No, I don't. I don't think that houses are going to have big ticket items that need to be repaired or replaced any more in the recession than they did before the recession. I just don't. It's just that's just what you're running into maybe right now. And maybe you're hitting a lot of them. But no, I, I don't think that's I don't think the recession has any effect on the condition of the house, the way we're going to find it as investors. It probably has a lot more to do with who you're marketing to um, or maybe just the area that you're marketing in. <clears throat> but we're not finding that. And I've been now through like the, the recession of 08, 09, right? Like the great, the huge, huge recession. I've been through that. I've been through this huge upturn we just had. And now we're heading back into recession. And there's been no correlation to the, to the, um, uh, the quality or the condition of the house that we're buying. I just don't think there's a correlation. You're just happening to find people that have a lot of deferred maintenance and a lot of big things going on. But I wouldn't necessarily be afraid of it. If you're a new investor and you really haven't done any rehabs before, taking on a huge one can be, you know, can be a little daunting and maybe it's not the best idea in the world. But, you know, big ticket items that need to be repaired or replaced, that's what we do. We're investors. Like that should excite you. Not, I wouldn't look at it as biting the bullet. If it has a big ticket item that has to be replaced or repaired, that'll be reflected in your purchase price, right? You have to factor that in. So, you know, to me, I, I've always said this, and and I still stand by it. it, it maybe with the with the exception of a brand new investor, maybe this isn't the case. But for most of us, you can either buy a house for two hundred thousand dollars and put 
$50,000 into it, or you can buy a house for $100,000 and put $150,000 into it, right? It doesn't really matter. It all ends up the same way. The math works out the same. Assuming I just did that public math correctly, I think I did. You're at $250,000 all in, right? Whether the house cost 100 and you put 150 in, or the house costs 200 and you just put 50 in, right? You just end up in the same place. The house that needs more work, usually you can get those at really great discounts because the people living in it know that it's a dumpster fire and they have to unload it. They don't have a choice. The people who only need ten dollars or $15,000 worth of work sometimes can see their way to the end of that project and they may not be as motivated, but you get somebody who needs big ticket items replaced. Like for a lot of people in the world and in America too, if they need a new roof and a new furnace and the roof's going to be 10,000 and the furnace is going to be, you know, 5,000, it's $15,000. It might as well be 150,000 or 15 million. It doesn't matter because they're not coming up with 15,000 any more than they're coming up with 150,000. And so you can, you can leverage that need the house has those big ticket items and say listen how if if i don't buy this house what what are you going to do what's your plan the mls you're not going to sell it on the mls with a furnace that doesn't work and a roof that's leaking no one will buy it it won't even pass inspection the mortgage company won't won't approve a mortgage it won't pass right so i'm here for you i'm a solution i I don't care that the roof is leaking i can handle it The, the furnace fine leave it alone. I don't care if it works or not. I'll buy it as is, right? These are the conversations that we have with sellers. So big ticket items is, it's just, it's part of the game. It's part of what we do as investors. We look for houses that need big ticket items. And then we leverage that big ticket, you know, problem into big savings and big, you know, um, purchases that, that are for well under value, right? Or well under the potential value. So, no, the recession isn't causing big ticket items. It's not. Um, it's just where you're marketing or how you're marketing or the, just maybe just coincidentally, that's just who you're getting right now. So you'll get those. We get those too. And sometimes we do them. Sometimes we don't. Depends on what, on everything. It depends on how much money we have available to us, how busy we are, where it's located. Like there's a lot of factors. It's not necessarily big ticket items or not. It's like, you know, where we are in our business right now, where the cash flow is, where the workload is, do we want to take on this particular house with these particular problems? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. We we do flip more now than we used to. And if we don't, then we put to a buyer's list. And buyers, there's always a buyer that wants to deal with big ticket items. Some people, that's their bread and butter is finding these really... Re- I know an investor here in Michigan, he buys houses for $50,000 and puts a hundred or 150 into them. Like... He's completely backward on the purchase and usually purchase and then renovation is some percentage of the purchase. Like he's doing it flip flopped around. He's buying it for like 40, 50,000 and putting 100, 150 into it. These are huge renovations to houses that are in really bad shape, but it works and he makes a lot of money. He's really successful. So I don't worry, don't worry about the big ticket items unless you're brand new. That's the only time I would caution you to maybe don't do a, a property with big ticket problems if you're new. If you're really green, you might want to look for something that's slightly easier to kind of get your feet wet and learn a little bit before you take on huge projects that could end up being, you know, going really the other way. So, all right. Is that, that's the last one, right, Angela? You didn't give me a message, but I think it's the last one or not. Oh, follow up question. All right. Do you have a mechanism 
for questions that don't need to be answered right away. I'm getting interrupted constantly. Oh, I see. For, this is the person who asked about, okay, uh, keeping people uh, focused and all that. Do you have a mechanism for answering questions that don't even answer right away? I'm getting inter interrupted constantly. Um, I mean, you know, I, I would say tell your team if there's if there's windows of your day where, where you want to answer questions, I mean, they could always email you and you don't check your email. That's what I would do. If a question is an urgent, don't put it in WhatsApp because I'm going to see that. I'm going to get a notification and I'm going to see it. I'm going to answer it or I'm going to at least feel compelled to respond. So either they send it in an email and you only check your email when you're ready to look at questions that are not urgent or if you have the, the discipline, you can say, send me a WhatsApp message, but start the message with not important or answer later or something like that's how you start. And then colon with a question, right? So if I see that come through and it says not important, I just, I put it down. I personally probably would still be compelled to read the question and then I'm thinking about it and it's, and it's using up brain space. So I would say if it's not important, it doesn't need to be answered right away. Send me an email. And I just wouldn't open my email until I was ready to look at those questions. So, and that's easy for me. If you ask my assistant, she'll tell you, I don't ever open my email. I never see anything. And so if you really don't want me to see something, email me. And that's how I will never see it unless she brings it to my attention. She'll, she'll be the gatekeeper then. And, and she'll let me see it when, when I'm ready to see it. So, but if you send me a text message, like I'm on that, right? So I would, I would want to see it in email form or at the very least, like, or just tell them to have the discipline to not ask you right away, like ask you at the end of the day or like give them a time frame that's safe, like between four and 5 p.m. Flood me with questions that are not critical and I'll, I'll just, I'll ignore during that time. You know, you can come up with your own methods, but the big thing is if it's not important, uh, you should not be answering it right away. And yeah, so if you use traction uh, I, and I, I really suggest that you try it if you haven't done it there's a book called traction by Gino Wickman traction is it's a system it's a process for running your business and within traction within that framework there's something called the VTO issues list okay the issues list are uh, issues that need to be addressed but you can wait until the one day a week where you have your meeting and you look at the issues list. So in my company, that's exactly what we do. If there's something that needs to be talked about or addressed or dealt with, and it's not time critical, then we put it on the issues list. And every day, once a week, uh, not every day, every week, once a week, we go to the issues list and we just go down the list and start working through the issues and answering questions. That's another great way to do it, right? Either email you if, if it needs to be answered like that day, but it's not super critical, maybe an email is appropriate. If it just needs to be addressed in the next week or so, then create an issues list within your company where people just know everyone has access to it. They can go and put issues in the date that the issue occurred or that they put it, that the input who is the author of that issue, who is the person who put it in, and then a brief description of the issue. And then you have that meeting once a week, you just go down the issues list and start solving those problems. That's for issues that literally don't need to be answered for a week, maybe. Um, so that's how I would do it. All right. If there's no other questions, and I don't think there is because I'm not having a pop up on my screen, then uh, we will call it a day. All right, guys, thank you for being here for the live questions. I appreciate it. everyone who's watching live. I know I talk to people who tell me they 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 tune into this, they log in every week, they don't always ask questions, they just want to hear the questions and my answers. And so thank you for being here as well. Even if you're not asking questions, it's totally fine. Uh, I like having you guys here. And I'll be here next week at 7pm Eastern time 4pm Pacific. Until then, guys, go out there and get to work.
All right, I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay, until next time.